0: It's ringing. Hold what on. The,
1: what is that crazy old thing in your hand? I don't know. It's a, it's
0: a phone. Hold on. Were you dumpster diving? I was. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a classic. It's an antique. Hi. Yeah, hi. Is this Rick Grimes? Hi. How's it going? Oh, hold on. i got to show to you. All right. All right. Hello and welcome to Hey All You Zombies, or Hey All You Walking Dead fans. Uh, my you, name is
1: Chris. You, yeah, if you saw it on Sunday, you know exactly what that was all about. <laughs>
0: And this is my, my co-host, Richard Krause, and fellow Walking Dead fan. How are you?
1: I'm good. You know, listen, I have to tell you that I was a walking... I liked The Walking Dead very much in the first season because it was different, and it was something a little unusual, and it was a zombie... Tell- you know, that's not to like it, but it, we, our podcast is called Hey All You Zombies. So what's... Yeah. You know, obviously I'm going to like this. The second season lost me just a little bit. It seemed like uh, a lot of uh, lovely pastoral scenes with just the odd zombie and a lot of talking. And I get it. You know, I, I, I kind of enjoyed at the beginning of that season the, the 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 interpersonal relationships that were being explored and the power struggles that were being explored, all that kind of stuff. But really, what I wanted to see was an axe going through a zombie's head. That's what I wanted to see. And there was very little of that in the second season. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now, in this season, man, oh man. I mean, I, like, the first couple of episodes were the two single most violent Episodes I've ever seen of anything on television. Uh, the the not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before that, maybe the greatest hour of television this year. And then this, I mean, this week it was a tough follow-up to uh, the the previous show. But I'll tell you, this show had moments of greatness in it. Uh, <laughs> when when Rick goes back into the prison, and uh, in and in, and if you're if you're a fan, but you're not, you didn't see it. Go like this for a minute. So when he goes back into the prison, just because he's got to see for himself what happened to his wife uh, after the baby was born, and there's just those shots of him, like video game shots, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Doom or something, where he's, like, hitting zombies. You just see the act come down, and then blood squirts from the subjective point of view of the camera. Unbelievable! I mean, unbelievable that stuff. It was. I mean, there were moments in that show that were so cool, uh, and and uh, the governor is turning out to be a really fascinating character. And I mean, this show just keeps getting better and better. Even though last week's episode—it's like a week ago, eight days ago, eight nine days ago—that episode was like a season finale on any other show. Yes. <laughs> My mind's blown. My
0: mind is blown. No, and it it just—I mean. Um, again, this was a series that I think they they took sec- season two to try to go off and do their own thing, ignoring yeah. the fact that the comic book, you know, and it's typical of that. You know, anytime trying somebody's trying to make a movie based off of a Marvel property, they have to deal with all the fans going, "No, make it like right. the comic book. It's so good." But there was such a big difference between what you saw on television and the willingness in the comic book to go to the edge of the cliff. Every issue, every episode, and introduce something that was just completely shocking. Uh, I wasn't sure if they were going to live up to the comic book this season. I mean, there were a couple things. I didn't even think they were going to bring in Michonne. I, I thought the idea of a woman with a samurai sword and two sort of undead boyfriends would be too much for television. She's she's coming back. I don't know, I, think, yeah. I mean, I haven't read the book, so
1: really, I'm I'm a, in a lot of ways a Walking Dead virgin. Like I I, I watch the show, and as it unfolds in the show, mm-hmm. is my understanding of the story. I don't know any of the backstory. I haven't read the books, and I'm probably not going to because I'm enjoying the show so much that yeah. I don't want to spoil it for myself. You know, and, uh,
0: and I don't think there really is the reason to do so. Yeah. I would have argued uh, a season ago, man, you're missing out. There's some yeah. great stuff going on, but now they're they're kind of capturing that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, continue. Well, well,
1: I'll tell you, here you go. She's coming back. I know she's coming back with that samurai sword, and it's going to get crazy. (laughs) That's all I'm saying.
0: It is going to get crazy, although I don't know if she's going to enjoy it much. But, um, I mean, the best thing that happened in this last uh, week's, week's episode was the phone Ringing. I I had no idea whether that was going to happen. That it has is fantastic. It's okay, so now that's something, in the book, right? Is
1: that in the books?
0: That's in the books. Because
1: here's my theory about what happened. And uh, like you don't they just sit there stone faced, so you don't. If for anyone who hasn't read the books, maybe they you know don't give it away. Here's what I think. I think Rick's gone crazy, and that phone doesn't actually exist. That's what I. <laughs> that's
0: what I <laughs> I just think that people are going to be shocked when they hear the voice that's on the other end. What is who that person has revealed. Uh and uh yeah, I, I think that it's finally going into the kind of territory that you would only see in a really great movie. Uh there there is definitely a, a sense here of uh all work and no play and Jack is a dull boy uh yeah. going on within the, the maze as, as Rick is going down those corridors. It's just well, it's,
1: yeah. it's interesting because um you know, the, the the second season, there was rumors that, you know, AMC, the host network, who pays for it, was kind of like, you know what? That first season was awesome. Got us great ratings. Here's half the money that we gave you last year to do the show. And that's why not much happened. There was like essentially one setting, you know, one large setting, and that not a lot of stuff happened. And the show still managed to hang on to its huge viewership. Uh, so then they finally said, okay, here's a, here's a whack load of money. We're not spending it on Mad Men, so here, here's a bunch more money for you. Because <laughs> and, uh, and this, I mean, it is, it, it seems to me, anyway, much more cinematic uh, than it's shot differently, it looks like to me. There's clearly way more, you know, zombies and special effects and all sorts of stuff. So someone has, uh, you know, turned on the money faucet somewhere, and the show is uh, benefiting from that.
0: Sure. I totally agree. I can't wait for the, for the next couple of episodes. It's going to be just... I don't know now.
1: how many there are. How many are there in a season?
0: i don't know it's uh because we're only three or four in you know, we're like four in, right yeah, well, typically American... more can happen <laughs> <laughs> oh a lot can happen yeah, uh yeah, and it'll be very, very interesting again, you know, Robert Kirkman has proven himself to be a fantastic uh author and storyteller, yeah. and he does not pull his punches yeah um the the comic books. It, it, the best part about getting to each issue of the comic book was going to the back page where all the letters were because right. it was just full of complete outrage. And people saying, I will never read this again. I can't believe what you did. You know, how how can you do this to his mom? And what's happening to Carl? It was just complete shock. It would take weeks for people to just process what had happened. And uh, it's just it's fantastic that well, you of have a show that hits that, that level of emotion. Well, someone... Uh on
1: Sunday night at just you know the the show starts and some crazy stuff happens right away and then you know during the first commercial I go over and I check Twitter and someone has written not a Walking Dead fan hate Sunday nights because nothing happens on Twitter except Walking Dead and you look it's just everyone going oh my god did you see that oh my god that was so cool wow and it's true and that and that's new that's only happened in the last two or three weeks whereas Sunday night you know the Walking Dead owns Twitter
0: yeah and i I think you know it's going to be interesting because it's catching up to the end of the the comic book or to to the recent issue of the comic book, and there's been a lot of conjecture as whether or not you can maintain that level of constantly shocking or coming up with things that are are incredulous and I don't know, and it'll be interesting to see how they kind of deal with that in the next couple of seasons, but for now, this is riveting television this is what we've been looking for for a long time. well, see the thing is I mean that second season
1: in this season. Now, that second season starts to make sense to me, more sense than it did at the time. Because to to experience a sense of loss, to experience a sense of outrage that, you know, characters that you've grown to know and love are being just, like, apparently willy-nilly, you know, being killed off, you have to like them first. And so that second season was about, hey, get to know us, see what's going on, you know? and And I think that's kind of an interesting... Thing. Now I don't know if that was the plan, but that's certainly what's happened. I think, and uh, so if they keep killing people off at the rate that they're going now, there's going to be nobody left if this <laughs> if this series goes. If this if they do like 20 episodes, which I don't think they will, I think they only do like eight or ten. But yeah. if they do like you know 15 of them, there'll be nobody left. We'll have to start all over again. But the beauty of this show is that it could start all over again. You go to a different town. You go to there's one survivor from this one who runs through the woods and bumps into another clan of people that are surviving, and that becomes a whole new story with a whole new dynamic. Kind of like what's happened with the governor in this. You know, we're we're introduced to a whole new uh, cast of characters, but you have to care about them. If you just started killing off people, you know, the scientist guy from uh, the yeah. you know from the from the new content, who cares? He can go. I yeah. wouldn't feel anything much of it because I don't know him. I've only seen him for a couple of episodes.
0: Well, and they make that wonderful statement where uh they talk about losing one of the characters and saying, you know, well the the two new guys we picked up, they're good guys. And uh Glenn mm-hmm. makes that comment of saying, The guy we lost, he wasn't a good guy. He was the yeah. best guy. I would give up twenty of these other people we find right. strangers on the road, just to be able to hold on to one of our own. So there is that dilemma as you start Dwindling the cast down, can you find a, a way to bring in new characters that have the same emotional kind of well, depth
1: to it? But I think the prisoners, I think the prisoners might add that the two guys that are that are uh, trying their best to become part of that family now. I think that they might actually, particularly the blonde, really friendly one, who really wants to be a part of this whole thing. I think he might actually uh, turn into something interesting if they don't, you know, let him get eaten by zombies next well, week.
0: And part of the, what yeah, uh, one of the, the, the ways that from a writer's point of view that you kinda of solve that is that you have your current characters develop relationships with the strangers. Well, so we invest in that sense. Yeah. It's like yeah. now, you know, suddenly you say you give Michan a boyfriend from one of the other, you know, encounters and you care by extension to what happens to that character. And so you can kinda of keep it going, uh just in that respect alone.
1: Yeah, yeah, I am, uh, man, I just don't know. Every week, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what to expect. And and there's very few shows that do that. I mean, part of the thing uh, for me, I loved Law & Order for a long time. I knew what was going to happen. And there was some something kind of comforting about it. Uh, the Walking Dead isn't like that anymore. It kind of was last season, but it's not like that anymore. There's There doesn't seem to be a formula. Now you've got one of the main characters, Rick. Who apparently has gone mad, and it was barely in the show last week, you know, and and so and he was the main focus of the show really for for a couple of seasons. So it's interesting. It's interesting. It's probably also very useful around contract negotiation time for the producers of this show. <laughs> People are like, you know, what? I'm the damn star of this show. I want you know seven million dollars an episode. The next week you're getting eaten by zombies. They're pulling oh. skin, you know.
0: Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah you've been bitten. But there may be a chance they could lop off uh, an yeah, arm. Maybe you might right. live. It all depends on what your, your agent sort of asks for.
1: Yeah, maybe yeah. that's what, uh, what happened with the character who plays uh, – the guy that plays Herschel. Maybe he wanted more money. They bite him. They're like, well, cut off your leg. But <laughs> it, <laughs> the virus may have spread.
0: Well, and there's always, I think, uh, one of the necessary parts to horror is that you should feel like you're not in control and I think one of the bad things with horror movies is when you think you're ahead of the crowd of what's going on, Walking Dead does a great job of making you feel like you're on a roller coaster, and you look back, and the guy who's not the controls is like, ah, you know, you don't know anymore where the boundaries of safety are. So, yeah, well, so no, it's Hitchcock a fantastic. Hitchcock
1: killing movie. off, we talked about this last week, Hitchcock killing off Janet Lee 30 minutes into the movie. On The Walking Dead, you don't really ever know who's going to go. No, you don't know which is the next one to go. Maybe sometimes you have an idea, though. I didn't see T Dog going. I did not see that coming. So no. oh. it's a great show. It is a great, great show. And have you seen the trailer? We're talking about zombies. Have you seen the trailer for World War Z? Oh
0: God, yeah. Uh, I'm
1: I'm told people are disappointed because again, it doesn't really look like it follows along with the book.
0: I haven't read the book. Um, it's on my reading list because everybody keeps going on about how great it is. But I mean, even as someone who hasn't read the book, I'm really disappointed in what I see in the trailer because I don't see it as being um, having that kind of weight to it. The, the zombies, whatever you want to call them, just look like CGI puppets to me. I don't see they, real human beings on the screen.
1: Yeah, they do a little bit for sure. I mean, maybe you know, maybe it's just early days, and we're not seeing finished you know renderings or whatever. Probably we are, but no, maybe we're not. But I think the human ladder thing that they do is so—that is so crazy. <laughs> is yeah. so crazy. I, you know, that is something that I would—you know—if nothing else, I want to see that.
0: Just that—that sort of army ant, you know, as yeah. ants in real life sort of form bridges to allow them yeah. to go across. I guess these guys do that in the movie. I mean, you know, I, I'm always happy when you have a major talent like Brad Pitt getting yeah. involved in a movie like Zombies to add that kind of dramatic weight. I think he'll be good in it. I just, I'm not too sure if the, the movie's taken the right direction. Right. Um, I like what Simon Pegg said in terms of talking about fast zombies versus slow movies uh, zombies. He always said that uh, death, is not a dis- a death is a disability, not a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think he's bang on right there. That, that's one of the first problems I see with World War Z. But, you know, uh, we've been sur- surprised before, so we'll have to wait and see.
1: Uh, before we uh, get into this, sort of, you know, we, we've we've just started chit-chatting here a little bit. Before we get into your first topic, okay. uh, I want to show you a picture. This is pretty cool. Um, this is uh, uh, shameless promotion. All right. This is Marie Melvin, who played Father Mignon in the movie The Devils. Uh, I wrote a book called Raising Hell. Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils, and this is Murray Melvin holding a copy of the book after a screening of the Devils in London, in London, England. I was so thrilled when this came through. You have no idea. My head almost, <laughs> the top of my head, almost popped off when this came through.
0: And um, he's holding it to his chest. He's holding it like he's you know, holding it it's, like. It's,
1: Baby, correct, yeah. <laughs> but I was very pleased to get this photograph, so that's uh, I wanted to share that with the people. Oh, that's
0: that's good. I mean, it's it's fantastic, and that's what you want yeah. with uh, a project like that. You want to see that it affects people, yeah. not just that it you know does well as we, yeah. we yeah. put it. Uh, I wanted to share some really cool logo designs created by a graphic artist named Ben Fellows. Uh, and you see a lot of this stuff on the web. There are, there are you know, what they call memes or memes, images where people put words, and, you know, uh, if I see one more stay calm and carry on kind right. of parody, I'm going to puke. But I thought these in particular were really clever and well done that I wanted to share them. So here's uh, some logos from Ben Fellows. And the first one is <laughs> called Bad Will.
1: That's cool.
0: And what's great about these is that they have a very distinct zombie theme to it. Yeah, yeah. So here we are taking a look at uh, a very different brand of oatmeal from the mornings.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: cadaver. Uh, and then let's see, I'll pull up here the next one. For those who are uh, sports fans. Little...
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're really well done. Uh, and then I like this one in case you have to send a package. Uh, definitely, you might wonder what's inside the package. That is awesome. Wow. Uh, and then one of the electronic companies that I often deal with. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Life's not good. Life's over. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, there's a couple others. This one's great uh, for those of who live down in the South. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love the brutal face there. <laughs> oh,
0: doesn't he look great? I mean, he's missing an eye. Yeah. He's bigger
1: looking oh. goo. Is a, is a great is a great
0: you'relick goo um do do from mr Hugh Hefner. these <laughs> <laughs> are great who is this guy uh he's a graphics designer in the u k right and so I guess he got bored one weekend and just did a, a whole pile of these right. uh a little toy for the girls to wow. play with yeah no, i like zombie and um uh do 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 very popular franchise find it all over the place <laughs> wow uh, one more one more we'll move back here and then that'll be it uh do do do, 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 do. which uh you know for our our oil dependent economy here we go a little <laughs> wow yeah so
1: the thing that's cool about them to me is that you know they're readily identifiable as what they are but he's twisted them just enough as so as not to be actionable, probably, and also uh, by the companies, but also uh, to you know make a statement uh, on the you know various companies that he's parodying as well.
0: Yeah, and it's not the same joke over and over and over again. I mean, I've been seeing all sorts of zombie jokes on the web, which is just somebody eating somebody else or something along those. No, he's very clever in terms of of again doing what a good logo designer does in that trying to visually uh, get across a message, and he's thought about it clearly, a great deal amount. No, it's great. That's uh, Ben Fellows is his name, and so I hope that gets him a lot of work from some major companies.
1: Well, yeah, I tell you, it's not going to get him work from Starbucks, uh, Barbie. Uh, yeah. bar <laughs> Del, bar. <laughs> no, that's very cool. That's uh, that's excellent. Um, I wanted to, uh, speaking of the UK, talk about uh, Monty Python a little bit. Mm. Um, and the, it, I've been thinking about it a great deal, uh thing because uh, there's a movie uh, opening this weekend called A Liar's Autobiography, uh, uh, which is the, um, you know, mostly untrue uh, film about Graham Chapman's life. And uh, I interviewed Terry Jones, who was... Uh, here, let me throw this up. I'll show you. If, if you just need to be uh, reminded. Um, Terry Jones was one of the founding members of... of uh, of uh, Monty Python, and that's him and me, uh, with a little doll uh, of Sigmund Freud, uh, who is actually in the movie and voiced by Cameron Diaz uh, in the film. Wow. Yeah, but that's Terry Jones, and he was, you know, obviously one of the stars of of Monty Python, but he also had a really significant off-screen role. He uh, was co-director with Terry Gilliam on on a couple of the movies, but it was his idea That the show, it was always going to be a sketch show, but it was his idea that the sketch show uh, flow, that the sketches flow into one another. Instead of saying, you know, here's an end to that sketch, we're going to wrap that up, fade to black, start another one. His idea was to do the, and now for something completely different, which of course became their tagline. And uh, he, uh, he makes me laugh, I'll tell you. Um, the, the word Python-esque is a word that is now in the dictionary. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. And uh, I love how uh, all of these guys, because I've interviewed and, and spoken with Terry Gilliam many times, and they all, the Pythons that met, seem to have this kind of way of just kind of inverting an idea uh, to, to, either for comedic effect, or maybe it's just because they are all, you know, all genuinely eccentric, and this is really how they think. But Terry Jones... Uh, it says that he's uh, disappointed that the word python made it into the Oxford English Dictionary, and he said uh, that the initial aim of Monty Python was to create something new and impossible to categorize, and that the fact that python is now a word in the dictionary shows the extent to which we failed, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I think is kind of awesome. And, uh, um, I, uh, I interviewed him in September, uh, a couple of times for television and for print for this movie, and, uh, he was really sort of a fascinating guy, because he lives this weird life of the mind now. Um, he, uh, when you talk about Monty Python with him, uh, he claims that, you know, for him, he doesn't really understand, uh, the legacy of Monty Python. He doesn't feel that there is one, that oh. they like anything behind, even though, uh, you know, it comic after comic sort of cites them as one of the major influences. They've been called the most influential sketch comedy group of all time. Uh, everything from like Saturday Night Live to uh, South Park to the Kids in the Hall to 30 Rock, everyone's been influenced by them. Mike Myers said, if comedy had a periodic element table, Python would have more than one atom on it. You know, they've been compared to uh, the Beatles for their effect on comedy, Is you know, in the sense that the Beatles had such a, a, a sea change effect on music. Uh, but he said you know what he he doesn't really see that there's a legacy i have no impact uh whatsoever what impact we have on on uh comedy which i always thought was really uh interesting but uh he has now uh sort of given his life over to academia he writes odd little books about odd things, That's and uh, sort of kicks, yeah, kicks back, and sort of you know lives. I would imagine off money uh, generated by Monty Python, but uh, is isn't uh, all that in, involved in it. And he tells me that uh, most everybody, uh, you know John Cleese, uh, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, I uh, said it's uh, they all have a limited amount of interest in new money Python projects. But they all got together to lend their voices to uh this movie, uh which is the Liar's Autobiography, uh, mostly uh well for any number of reasons, but part of it was that it paid tribute to Graham Chapman, who uh died in uh nineteen eighty nine. And interestingly enough, he died on the twentieth anniversary of the first broadcast of Monty Python's Flying Circus, uh, which again, you know, Jones uh, Terry Jones, looking at this in his own kind of twisted way, uh, called Graham Chapman's passing the worst case of party pooping in all history.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, but I asked him, you know, how does it feel to, uh, uh, you know, sort of revisit this sort of, you know, era in your life and hear Graham's voice again? And he said that it was really easy, kind of natural to hear it. Um, but he also told me that. Graham Chapman was a a bit of a mystery to anyone who knew him and worked with him. And he said, I don't really feel like any of us actually knew him. Which is really just kind of interesting. The movie is odd. It's not a Monty Python movie. It is animated. uh, And the styles of animation are all over the place. There's 12 different styles of animation that come and go. Everything from stop motion to stuff that looks like anime to, you know, uh, more traditional stuff. It's all over the map. And uh, it's not particularly funny. I mean, it it is amusing by times, and I think that the the movie is most successful when it mixes humor with insight. Uh, There's a, a lot of talk about how uncomfortable Graham Chapman was with fame. Now, this is a guy who was a physician, went to Cambridge, writer, author, Big star with Monty Python starred in, in the two of their big biggest hit movies. You know, wrote the parrot sketch was you know a, a, a stalwart on television. He was he was a very famous guy for a, a, a period of time, and he had a real problem with it. And, and at one point, he describes um, a Hollywood disease known as Nivenism, uh, which is all about uh, it's, it one of its symptoms is incessant name dropping, and it's referring to David Niven's habit of like <laughs> well, when I was having lunch with Peter with
0: Taylor, yeah. and Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor said the funniest thing the other day. That kind of thing, and and so I liked that. I liked those stories. I like that a lot. I like how it's woven into the narrative. Um, I think people expecting this to turn into a Monty Python movie may be a little disappointed by it, just in the sense that it's not a Monty Python film. It no. has Python-esque uh, uh, elements, but the creation of Monty Python is dealt with very quickly. Uh, they are seen as monkeys throwing feces at one another, and that's kind of that's how they started. And but it's really more about his life and his difficulties with alcohol and uh, coming out of the closet at a point where uh, people um, often in show business chose to remain in the closet. Yep. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a fascinating movie on many levels, but it's not a Monty Python movie. So you know, if you're going, expected to see the Holy Grail you're not gonna see that but you will you will see something interesting but I was just uh, I, I just thought that Terry Jones was so interesting and you know he is this kind of now eccentric guy I mean he's just sort of you know he he's he he he's got a really interesting kind of uh, uh outlook on things and I, I was just fascinated to chat with him so
0: yeah a lot of comedians or stand-up comics tend to be um, class clowns or people who were Thinking a lot about comedy, and yet that troupe those guys they were highly educated, they were very, very intelligent uh, men, uh, many of them had other specialties, and Chapman you know was a practicing physician i mean it's just it 's insane uh, just the the level of, of of sort of layers that exists to all of them that Michael Palin can go off and become Uh, a world-renowned traveler, and (laughs) Eric Idle is, you know, a musical expert. It's just, it's crazy. And that what we do know, the very veneer about these guys, is nothing compared to what exists behind them. And so anyone who uh, is interested in just learning about fantastic minds definitely should, I think, see this, because Graham Chapman was an incredibly fascinating fellow.
1: Yeah and I'm also I mean this and this was a completely you know was unrelated at the time but I'm also reading a book about the making of Terry Gilliam's Brazil right
0: now right
1: the Battle for Brazil and I mean this it was the very definition of a troubled project you know and uh um but the the early part of the book about Terry Gilliam and his uh his love of uh, annoying people and pissing people off. Uh, he called his his company is called Poopoo Poo Pictures because he loved the idea of executives in Hollywood sitting around talking about something called Poopoo Poo Pictures. And apparently, it's one of the things that really pissed off the people at Universal who owned Brazil is that they would have to have these meetings and they would get notes on Poopoo Poo Pictures letterhead, <laughs> and it really drove them crazy. <laughs> who does business like this? A lot of that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, so uh, Monty Python's been on my mind. I mean, when I was a kid, huge Monty Python fan. And uh, had you told the, you know, 14 to 18-year-old me, when there was, that's the point at which I was probably most obsessed with uh, Monty Python, that I would get to know two members of the, uh, of the troop and, you know, email them from time to time and be able to be friendly with them, my head would have exploded. And, uh, <laughs> and then that's come to pass, so that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. No, that's really good. I have to check out that movie. Um, okay, so I also want to talk about something that was a big impact right. when I was a kid. Uh, not that Monty Python wasn't, because equally, we worshipped it in our household as well. Right. But uh, I saw Skyfall this weekend, and you're absolutely right. I think that your opinion about it is bang on. It's a fantastic film. I know there have been some mixed reviews, but no, 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 no. I, I, I personally, I really, really enjoyed it. It's
1: hot stuff, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think you said everything that had to be said about it. Uh, what I wanted to do was to talk about Goldfinger, which is um, my favorite of the James Bond films, but also I feel the best of the James Bond films. Right. And um, because of the 50th anniversary, because of Skyfall, there's been a lot of chatter about James Bond. I've been paying attention to it on the web. And I've been disappointed at the number of people who are trashing on Goldfinger. And a lot of it seems to be people Trash. who... Yeah, and I don't understand.
1: The John Connery films are kind of you know set on a pedestal high above the you know Timothy Dalton Roger Moore Pierce Brosnan years
0: completely but I think also you've had a lot of people now in their 20s who have grown up uh, you know their first Bond wasn't Connery; it was another Bond, and so there's a, there's been a lot of people who champion the films that I think are great. But for there's been almost I think a confusion. I've been hearing a lot of people sort of poo-poo Goldfinger, and I think that's a bit of a mistake. So I wanted to kind of correct that, but also talk about this is a movie that I have revisited several times throughout my life. I've pulled out the copy, I've popped it in, and I have analyzed it. I've watched it once without any sound just yeah. to see how it's visually told uh, I've, I've popped it in once where I wasn't in the room and I could just listen to the right. music and the sound effects and all that kind of stuff and so I wanted to share some observations uh, about it. But first I will remind people why Goldfinger is is one of the best, if not the best, James Bond movie. There are six great things about it that make it stand out.
1: Well, you have. Uh, I'm just going to sit back then.
0: Yeah, I have. The, the first one uh, has to be the song, uh, Goldfinger. Shirley Bassey, that beautiful, beautiful sound. I'll give you just a quick little reminder. Ah, uh,
1: not hearing anything. Gold finger.
0: Are <laughs> not hearing it? Okay, so that brassy bah, 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 I think that's a fantastic song. Um the second thing, of course let's see if I can pull it up here do to do has to be that iconic uh scene of doo, 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 not that one. not that one. I got all these zombie logos now. Here we are. <laughs> so yeah, that iconic scene of Jill Masterson stretched out across that bed, painted in gold, has to be one of the most iconic sort of symbols of crime and murder and mystery.
1: Which isn't humanly possible, but it's great in the movie. I like how you've chosen a very tasteful shot with the pillow covering her (laughs) modesty, making making the picture much more modest.
0: Ah, yes. Well, I'm trying here. It is YouTube. Um, And then um, you've got that fantastic line. Uh, that uh, Orc Goldfinger delivers, you know, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Well, did Uh, you know about
1: this guy? You know about this guy, right? He didn't speak English?
0: Gertfeld, no. Yeah, I knew that he was German. He did not speak English. He had to kind of do everything by rote.
1: Yeah, well, he learned everything phonetically, and that's why I think his delivery is so odd. It's like his impression of how an English person speaks. I expect you to die, Mister Bond. There's no German people that speak like that, and it's awesome. I, I it, like it is truly uh, one of the great like esque lines ever. Yeah, James Bond or or beyond.
0: Well, it's it's kind of like um, you know in um, uh, this Sergio Leone film when right. he says you know if you have to shoot shoot, don't talk. It's yeah, kind yeah. of you're taking on that trope of a villain who's just going to sit there and yammer away and give right. time for the hero to kind of escape, and in this case, he's like, no, I just want you to die. You know, I'm not here to entertain you. We're not going to have a conversation. So I think that was fantastic, and then also this is the movie that you have odd job. Uh, yeah. The henchman, you tap the head, throw that bowler cap, and it would decapitate somebody. It's also the movie with Pussy Galore. A lot of people tend to think that's Octopussy, no, it's Goldfinger.
1: Yeah.
0: And here's what I'll say about Pussy Galore. She is awesome. Uh <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> Later on, in the 1980s and 90s, there's this big deal about how there's finally a woman that can kind of take on James Bond. No, don't have to go that far. 1964, Bond wakes up to find this woman smiling over top of him, and it's the female version of, version of James Bond, because as they explain in the book, she has as much of a reputation for seducing young women as Bond does. Oh. This was is- very bold. To, to introduce a gay character, uh, you know there were there is some offensive stuff done in that they kind of suggest that Bond has almost made her change teams, as it were. Right, right, right. But here's the thing: if you watch the film, I will point out that Bond doesn't actually save the day; he messes up. He fails to get the message to the CIA. If you pay attention carefully, it's actually Pussy Galore who rescues everybody and brings it all uh, to end. So. For those out there, here's a movie in 1964 in which a gay woman saves the world. Just
1: put that out there. Well, and, and the you know the the books were much racier than the movies were. <laughs> uh, the the books had lots of kind of uh, you know interesting weird ideas woven into them that that you know Ian funny I'm not sure uh, um, you know exactly. Uh, what he was thinking when he wrote some of this stuff, but you read these books and you think this came out in 1960? This is nuts. And you know, I in the new movies, uh, Skyfall, uh, Javier Bardem is like stroking James Bond's legs or something at one point and says oh, something. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know, no, you never thought you'd be this close to a man, and Bond says, "What makes you think it's the first time?" or something like that. It's like, well, there's something maybe interesting to explore. <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> that'll be interesting if somebody decides to do a um a, well, I'm sure there's fan fiction already on the web uh, oh yeah uh taking a look at just that uh and then finally, I would say the last ingredient, very important is here we are the aston martin d b five I
1: had that car only it was you know a a, a tonka toy of when I was a kid, and the the license plate spun, and uh the ejector seat worked and it was it was uh, a pretty cool little unit.
0: Yeah, it it was, I think, also one of the best gadgets in the series, and certainly one of the most realistic, in the sense that you have things like oil slick and and smoke, you've got the little spinning wheels that came out, Uh, but the tracking system today, which, you know, everybody has on their phone, for crying out loud. But uh, (laughs) it's funny, because uh, Top Gear did a, a recent homage to the cars of James Bond, and even in their opinion, this is the best car in the entire franchise, the Aston Martin DB5. Uh, beautiful, beautiful car. Now, there are two reasons why the movie has personal importance to me. Uh, the first is that car. Because uh, if you see the movie, there is a little switch on the gear shift. If you press that button, the passenger side opens up and there's an ejector seat, which was a lot of fun to have. But in real life, um, as a very little, very young boy, after I had seen that movie, um, my father had a car. And it was just briefly, you know, when I was young. He had gotten rid of it by the time I was older and could actually kind of, you know, know things about cars. But I remember sitting in the car with my dad sort of getting out to maybe go pay the gas attendant. And looking over, and the gear shift had that little cap oh, along yeah. the top of it. And I was going, had that conversation in my head where I thought, no. Really? That, it's just the design on it. There's there's You're nothing. Like, to
1: self. Never sit in the passenger
0: seat.
1: Well, Never.
0: And I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and I, um, you know, very respectful of my father's property, would never normally touch it, but it just the curiosity was driving me crazy, so I actually lifted the cap, and sure enough, there was a red button underneath. And uh, that boggled my mind that that, uh, there was this thing that I'd seen in a movie and now there it is in real life. And he had never said anything about it. He had never really mentioned anything about it to me. So it was a complete mystery. And I didn't have the nerve to press it or to do anything with it. In fact, my father came back so I quickly put the cap back in place. You know what? Later on, uh, we were watching James Bond again and I was older. And my father leaned over and said, you know, I used to have a car that had... A button like that. I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. What does that button do? And he would not tell me. So he just, (laughs) to this day. He works
1: for the MI6. I have no idea. He was a spy.
0: (laughs) He was a spy, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, for for that, that's always been a very cherished memory for me. Wow. Uh, but second is that there's a fantastic sequence, and I'm going to talk about this in a moment. Is the visual storytelling of Goldfinger, which I am just blown away with. There are these great little moments throughout the movie that are almost miniature movies that I right. think are often told without any speaking. Uh, they're told just through sort of you know facial expressions alone.
1: These fantastic. are all my favorite moments in movies. The the moments in movies. Uh, well the, the the overarching rule of all movies is show me, don't tell me. Right. So but my favorite moments in movies are moments that uh tell you everything you need to know about the character without saying, Well, you know how I'm feeling right now. And and, and there's I mean, there's hundreds and there's thousands of them. I mean I love in uh, I'm just trying to think, Lost in translation, that moment when uh Scott Johansson's wearing that weird little pink wig and they've been to the karaoke bar and they've been out in around and stuff and they're sitting in the hallway and they're sitting next to one another and at this point, at first viewing, you're not sure what is going to become of their relationship, whether it's going to be a May-December thing or whatever. And instead, they're sitting together and she just leans over and puts her head on his shoulder in a very kind of tender but, you know, non-sexual kind of way. And at that moment, you understand their relationship. There's no words, they don't have to talk about it, they don't define it, but in that one small gesture, that little head resting on his shoulder, you understand exactly what's happening between the two of them. It's a fantastic moment, and movies that can do that are few, I think, and far between, and they're worth their weight in gold, or gold fingers, perhaps. (laughs)
0: I completely agree, and a lot of those moments, those moments, uh, you pick up on them unconsciously. And it's not until you watch the movie again that you suddenly realize that that's happening. That that someone's talking to you without you really noticing it. And there's a sequence in Goldfinger where James Bond is put into a prison cell. Mm -hmm. And we're wondering how he's going to get out. And uh, the prison door has a little window on it. And he walks up to the window and just sort of smiles at the guard that's on the other side and then he proceeds to turn around, walk to the back of the cell, turn back, walk over to the window, smile again, turn around, walk back to the prison cell, walk over to the window, smile, and then just do this as he disappears below the window. And there's a moment where the guard's sitting there waiting for him to kind of pop up, and when he doesn't see anything, he opens the door and the cell's empty. When he walks through, James Bond falls from the ceiling on top of him and takes him out. As a little boy, I was mesmerized by that sequence because I was trying to figure out how he did that. How do you physically get up there? So I spent several days uh, over the course of an entire summer learning how just to do that. It took me a long time. I was sitting in a door frame, people were like, what on earth are you doing? And then one day uh, my father walked out the front door of our house he <laughs> stepped forward he heard a giggle he looked up and there I was like wow. James Bond up in the ceiling wow. uh, and it wow. really kicked him in the pants he was pretty proud that I had figured that out but it was something that as a little kid I just I, and it's odd because you know as an adult you think well that was done with a stuntman or yeah, you know the yeah, way yeah. the camera's positioned when you're a kid you believe that what you see on television is possible oh, absolutely if, yeah. try to figure out how to make it actually happen so for me that's one of the great movies that I cherish personally because of those two little things. The fact that my father actually had a car with okay. a red button on the gear shift. And then cool. I could do a James Bond move. That was just, you know, that was fantastic.
1: Well, but if you, go ahead. if you
0: watch the movie again, I would ask you to sit down and, and watch it and pay attention to a theme that runs through it, which is of reflections and mirrors. Cool. Um, and it's great. Guy Hamilton does this throughout the whole movie. Uh, I've watched enough times to pick up on it now, because I guess the idea, the subject is gold. Gold yeah. is very reflective. You can see your reflection in it. And so throughout the whole movie, I mean, once you pick up on it, it's everywhere. It's all there. From the beginning, opening sequence in which you have women that are dancing, and they've got the movie sequences reflected on top of them. Um, the, the The very first scene that you see where James Bond plants bombs, explosives, goes into a nightclub and he does that cool movie throws a cigarette in his mouth yeah, yeah. pretends like he's going to light the cigarette but really he's illuminating the, the watch right. what's great about that is when the explosion goes off we see the reflection of the flame in the, the, the glass of the watch right, right, it's a right. very little subtle thing but it's beautiful uh, the next sequence that they do that with there's um, the fight James Bond is kissing some girl but an assassin comes up behind him and he notices the assassin reflected in the pupil of her eye. And it's great, because it's one of my favorite opening scenes, because he just takes the girl, turns around, deflects the shot with the back of her head, and then, you know, takes out the bad guy. Um, But as it continues, it just keeps popping up. There's a a car chase scene where James Bond is driving. He's managed to take care of all the bad guys. He goes down a, a, a lane. He notices a pair of headlights in front of him. And, you know, it becomes a game of chicken. He pulls out the machine guns. He tries to shoot the person in front of him. Nothing happens. At the last minute, he swerves and goes into a wall. And they reveal that at the end of the street was actually a mirror. And James Bond was seeing his own reflection. And this happens throughout the whole movie. Uh, There's a scene where James Bond is on the airplane. He's been captured by Goldfinger. And he says, I'm going to go to the bathroom to freshen up. And what happens? They start spying on him with two-way mirrors. And there's this lovely little game where Bond is like, you know, blocking one spy hole with another spy hole. It's just throughout the whole movie, you will see that they play with the idea of reflections and mirrors and people sort of looking into each other's faces. It's really well done, just masterful.
1: I'd have to see it again. I, I, I saw Dr. No on the big screen uh, recently. They're playing at the Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto. And the thing is, they, they did 24 hours of Bond, and I couldn't go that weekend. I was, they, <laughs> they just played all the movies sort of back-to-back, and I couldn't go. But um, the they're now, if you just check the listings, if you live in Toronto, you can catch them. So we went to see Dr. No the other day. Awesome, as I remembered it. I hadn't seen it for years. Probably had never seen it on the big screen. That's the thing. There's um, so many of these you just see on video, or, you know, for our age anyway. Sure. Um, and... Uh, um, so there 's that, and I want to see Goldfinger on the big screen, so it, it, I just so I will, I will be keeping my eye on the thing on the <laughs> listings, because I want to see it. One of the things that i've thought was kind of interesting about all this sort of renaissance of James Bond uh, online is that George Lazenby there seems to be kind of a, a, a sort of a i don 't know like a revisionist thinking about yeah. uh, about George Lazenby. And, you know, his contribution to the Bond uh, uh, canon. Because before, you know, for, I don't know, for ever, everyone just said, oh, well, you know, George Lazenby and, you know, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, was the weakest of all the Bond movies. He was just sort of a, a backup to Sean Connery, you know, whatever. Nobody seemed to, everyone seemed to write that one up. Now, mostly it was because he only made one movie. Uh, as James Bond. Um, he was a, a model, I think, probably didn't help his cred in a, in a great deal. No. Uh, but he left because he thought, oh, the James Bond thing has played itself out. They wanted them to come back and make more movies. And said, no, yeah, I'm not going to do this. And it's interesting now, I'm finding that Honor, Majesty's Secret Service is starting to get, like, listed as one of the good Bond movies, one of the great ones, uh, George Lazenby is being credited as bringing something interesting to the role, and that is completely the opposite of sort of traditional thinking.
0: No, I completely agree. Uh, throughout my childhood, the George Lazenby role was, <clears throat> I mean, it was considered to be a joke. Yeah. You know, it was the the movie that you were embarrassed to even mention, where you pretended that it didn't exist. You wouldn't count it if you're going through all the James Bond films. You know, it was always a battle between Roger Moore or Sean Connery. You wouldn't include. Um, George Lazenby in there, but yeah, I, I've I've seen a, um, a couple of other James Bond movies recently, but Goldfinger is the one that to me is not just a really great John, James Bond film, but is really great cinema. Uh, there's a whole sequence that takes place. Typically, James Bond gets involved in a game against the villain. It's right. usually a game of cards, and Goldfinger, it's all about golf. And I'm not a big fan of golf, but that. Golf sequence that takes place between Goldfinger and Bond and their two caddies, odd job and uh, a fellow named blackie fantastic I mean riveting for me, just seeing the two men play off of each other in terms of who 's going to win. I thought fantastic well,
1: speaking about uh George I just looked it up here. Diana Rigg was the co star of that movie, and uh after it was announced that you know uh, he was going to come back and play James Bond, she said. The role made Sean Connery a millionaire. It made Sean Connery. I truly don't know what's happening in George's mind. <laughs> and and afterwards, he grew a beard and long hair, and he said, Bond is a brute. I've already put him behind me. I will never play him again. Peace. That's the message. So, so he was a that,
0: victim of the times, maybe.
1: Well, 1969, you know, he was might have been, you know, just because he cleaned up pretty well doesn't mean he wasn't a hippie before. You know what I mean? Like, maybe... No. He came to this in a much different sort of uh, frame of mind than Connery, who uh, you know sort of left at the chance to play this. So, and anyway, I think the, the revisionist idea that George Lazenby is one of the great bonds is kind of interesting.
0: It is interesting, and it's something that it's not even just um, people who are being nostalgic. I've heard from a lot of young Bond fans who are in their 20s who, you know, couldn't have possibly uh, been around at the time in which people were were discussing Bond in the sense of, you know, George Lazenby being a joke and that they're finding these films and then enjoying them. So it's not a matter necessarily of rose-tinted glasses, but it does seem to be a case that people are finally looking at it with fresh eyes.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out again, because I haven't seen it for a long, long time. And I may have only seen it once, you know, so it's something I can't really comment on. But uh, um, I have found it interesting, because, again, as I say, it's a complete flip-flop. You know, before we we hit go here earlier, we were talking about um, a a recent uh, sort of, I don't know, troubling kind of odd thing that happened in Canadian media. It was announced today that after almost 40 years, Saturday Night at the Movies on TVO is being canceled. And, you know, if you live in Ontario, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This show is an institution. It is on Saturday nights on TVO, uh, TV Ontario. And typically they play two movies uh, of a theme. And then in between them, there are cleverly edited uh, uh, uh interview segments and, and some sort of information on the film or information on the director uh who's just made these things. Now a lot of these interviews were done by a guy called Elwie Yost, who was the host for most of the 40 years that the show was on. And Elwie was everybody's movie grandpa and he hosted this show and had a really sort of unique kind of lovable way about him, sort of like Santa Claus, only instead of, you know, lumps of gold he would bring you movies. And and he would do these interviews. But the show's been canceled, and, and it's funny. I just found out about it today, and I can't kind of stop thinking about it. I mean, I i, I, I think as I walk down Young Street just outside of you know, my house here, as I walk uh, down there and I walk past what used to be Sam the Record Van, and that's gone now, and Ryerson, it doesn't look like they're putting back the iconic rotating disc sign. As that's they- too bad it's really too bad uh and and you know the the the, 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 the 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 sort of culturally the stuff that i think uh is sort of relevant and and interesting and and makes the city and the the province kind of Part of part of its character seems to be getting stripped away in in a way that now maybe it's just me getting old and sitting here going I wish that I could watch we stuff. Well, Elw's been gone for a long time. It was, the show is now hosted by Tom Ernst, who does a fantastic job, and uh, he'll be the the host of the last season of the show because it, it's going. But I just kind of wish that these cultural uh, institutions like Saturday Night the movies, which you know for a lot of people, for me. Uh, it certainly was a show that I could watch before DVDs and Blu-rays and all that stuff came around and see really interesting movies that I might never have a chance to see otherwise. And it just it seems uh, shameful to me that uh, it's disappearing and that it's just sort of unceremoniously being stripped away because they're saying it's budgetary, they they got to, you know, free up some money. Uh, you know, one of the things, you can see movies on other channels, so why should we continue to show movies? Like Well, because that's the thing that you're most known for. If you ask anyone on the planet, well, Toronto, Ontario, what, you know, what's the first thing that pops in your mind when you think of TVL? they're going to say Saturday Night at the Movies. And I just think it's a real shame that that is disappearing.
0: I totally agree. And I think it's my opinion that it's completely unnecessary and that there's lots of evidence out there to kind of support that idea. Uh, we're one of the countries in the world, where we are dominated by American media, so we really have to fight extremely hard just to be able to get our own content, let alone content that becomes successful, let alone content that becomes uh, part of our cultural identity. There are very, very few shows that you can kind of point to that have that resonance to it and uh, Saturday night at the movies is definitely one of them. I mean it served initially a great purpose and that it was Far more uh, loving in terms of talking about movies than other media that's out there. It went more in depth than other programming that's out there. But it was but, also kind of homey, though. Like remember, yeah. like oh no goodness! No, I really liked
1: that You know, he was a, he was a fan who managed to you know be able to sit down and talk in a very plain spoken kind of way. Uh, to some of the legends. I mean, you know, the great thing about having a show that's been on for 40 years is he would go to LA for apparently two or three weeks a year and interview everybody. And so, I mean, they've got this archive. God knows what's going to happen to that now, but that archive should be preserved somehow of interviews with everybody. And they're folksy and fun. And I, 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 I love watching them because they're different than the stuff that's on absolutely every other channel. Now, entertainment these these harken back to a time when people had conversations and didn't speak in sound bites, and I, I I love watching them, and it saddens me that they'll be gone soon.
0: Well, you take a look at what happens with, say, the BBC, for example, which is another country that tends to be dominated by shows from yeah. other markets that's also struggling. When they have something that's culturally strong, they don't give up on it. You right. know, they had a show like Top Gear for many decades it started I think in the 1960s and 1970s when it reached to the 1990s there was an opportunity for them just to write it off and say well it's old, it's quaint, it's not relevant anymore but no they they just didn't give up on it they reinvested in it and now it's this huge franchise there are 350-400 million people around the world that watch it you have shows like Desert Island Discs which is still presented on the radio and that goes back to like the 1950s And, and they started off as being very quaint and kind of homey But no, you you don't give up. You say, all right, well, maybe we just got to find the right people. we bring in creative talent or just put out a call. I'm sure there are lots of people that will come to the aid of Saturday night at the movies. You do not have to give up on it quite so easily and for such sort of cold and mundane reasons as, you know, budgetary or financial difficulties or anything like that. No, I mean, there are markets that they understand that when something reaches an iconic uh, point, you, you really just don't give up on it. You kind of... Find a way to make it continue and keep going. There's value there that is really hard to get again with another series or another franchise. I don't know what TVO is going to put in its place, but I I don't think that it's going to quite reach the same status. Not anytime soon.
1: Well, and it's a huge chunk of time. I mean, you know, one of the great things about movies on television is that they they don't have to cost a fortune, particularly if you're showing kind of back catalog movies like TVO did, uh, and they they fill up a lot of space, they fill up a lot of time, you know, and so I, I just, I, I think this decision is a little bit baffling. The show, Tom Ernst, has taken it in a slightly different direction now and, and done interesting things to keep it fresh and revitalize it, and I'm just really sad to see it go, and, and I posted this on on Facebook, and I'm just gonna—I haven't looked uh, since we've been talking, but um, uh, it looks like yeah, it's just it, it continues on. I mean, I, I posted it uh, not that long ago, and there's dozens of, of comments, uh, all of which say things like "That sucks," "Sad news," "So sad," "Brutal," "Ouch," L. we must be fuming at his uh, heavenly cinema," "Shame on TBL," it goes on and on and on. Yeah, and you know it's it, it really is. Uh, uh, I, I just I, I hate to see it go. I hate to see it thrown away. You know, and I, I have to. I, I recently when you were there. You sat a couple of chairs down for me at the fortieth uh, birthday party for Canada AM, and you know that's a show uh, that has you know seems to in its in its most recent history. Found a whole new lease on life again. The numbers are great. The the fortieth anniversary show was watched by a lot of people. Like a There's lot of number
0: of people. Of, Crazy.
1: And like an insane amount of people. And it's a show that I think, you know, maybe sometimes people take it for granted, simply because it's always been there. It's always been there. And I think that the, the, the difference here is that if you took it away, people would really notice. And I think that's what's going to happen with Saturday Night at the Movies. I think you're going to find that people are, are, are you know, saying, "Well, you know, it's, it's been around for 40 years, but you take that show away, and people are going to people are going to be uh, upset." And I I I just wish it wasn't happening. I wish it wasn't. I know Tom Ernst. I wish it wasn't happening for him personally because he's a good guy and he has put his heart and soul into doing something interesting on this show. And it makes me sad that that uh, that this is happening. Uh, But you know, in a broader perspective, you know, they show interesting movies and then they contextualize them, and they they do interesting things. That is is in a market that is narrowing so much for. Uh, uh, intelligent film conversation, I hate to see another outlet just disappear in that way. It's really saddening. It, it saddens me. Uh, on a personal level, uh, because of my friendship with Tom, but also on a professional level, that it's just one more thing that disappearing that uh, will lower the level of discourse or make the the, the level of, of film-related discourse on television uh, be more like the big tabloid shows, and less like you know, intelligent uh, uh, conversation about the meaning of movies and why oh. movies are special.
0: Yeah, completely. I think it's a lost opportunity. I remember being a kid and all of us sort of sitting around and having conversations about you know shows that we love, and it's different when you're talking about a show that's actually Canadian that has that identity to it that you think is actually cool and is great. I remember when Brian Linahan's show ended and I mean it didn't even end with much fanfare It just sort of wasn't there anymore and people gradually noticed. but people still talk about that show today Uh, and that's I think what's going to be happening with TVO Saturday Night at the Movies people will still talk about 10 20 years uh, from from now on and that has intrinsic value that recognition is what so many corporations fight for in terms of trying to get IP's and trying to get brands that are recognizable Saturday Night at the Movies is definitely that it's just if they've reached a point where they feel that it's not worth doing anymore, then that's their failure. They're not investing properly to try to understand how to revitalize it and keep it going because there are a tremendous number of people in Toronto who recognize that show. If you talk to them about it, they have warm feelings about it. So you're, you're throwing that away, and that's really bad. That's unprofessional to me.
1: It is. I'm, 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 I'm upset by this. And it's funny. I mean, you know, you think uh, it's a television show. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's more than that. And and you know, as I said earlier, professionally and personally, this show means a lot to me and I just think that it's 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 a shame. Uh I hope if you know, if 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 this does have to be this way and I wish it didn't but it looks like it's happening. Um if it does have to be this way, I hope they at least give it the send-off that the show deserves. You know, uh treat it like the the jewel that it is. Uh, do a countdown to its final show, pop a champagne bottle or two, and and give it a, a, a proper send-off. Uh, if not, shame on you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or at least keep some sort of, you know, tie to it, uh, put a section on the website, allow Tom to develop material that he can put on here on YouTube, for example. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I, could, I would say about what we're talking about, here's a test. Imagine that you're in a foreign country, imagine that you're sitting at dinner uh, in Australia or China and you're talking with the people in that country about television does it come up that you have to explain a show that you love that no one else has seen because it's from your country more often than not you're going to be talking about shows like say Friends or The Voice they've all seen those shows but I think how many shows how many truly great Canadian shows would you be able to say oh there's this show that we do in our country it is fantastic let me tell you all about it I think it's very sad that you could probably count on one hand the number of shows that you could sort of uh, describe in that way and that's wrong that from for us in terms of trying to maintain our cultural heritage and our identity that should be something that should be very worrying to everybody well and,
1: well, and I just think you know from a, you know looking at it in a, from a slightly you know uh, more cynical point of view uh, it is to, from my money it is TBO's brand you know, I mean I know some of the other shows that are on there. Steve Pakin, you know, hosts a show and I know, you know, Alan Gregg has a show which is also being cancelled now. There's a few but for my money, and for, I think for ninety nine point nine percent of the uh population of Ontarians, Saturday Night the Movies is their brand, is the TBO brand. It's the show that is most connected with that. And to throw that away seems uh, you know, uh, like not only uh culturally wrong, but kind of bad business in in from where I'm sitting. You know, it would be like uh uh you know, I don't know, MTV deciding not to play music videos anymore. Can you imagine? No, they don't. But I know. But but it would be, you know, like you're taking the thing that you are most known for and saying, you know what, we're just not gonna bother anymore. Well, gonna if, anymore,
0: anymore. There is this whole uh wave of Come new up, shows. We're not, make,
1: we're not gonna make cereal anymore.
0: No. Yeah.
1: <laughs> anymore. You know?
0: it would be like Canada saying we're just not going to make a car ever Um, you know that kind of crazy stuff but I mean you have shows like AMC's comic book men you have the talking dead there's this entire wave now of shows of people getting together and talking about things of cultural importance that's happening down in the United States Uh, is TVO going to wake up one day and say we have to have our own version of that and will somebody point out going you did it was called Saturday Night the Movies and you got rid of it (laughs) you know
1: like that's funny to me yeah, well that's uh I you know, I, I wish I had uh more to say about it. I wish I had something, you know, brilliant uh to to figure out how to save it. Uh you know, it's 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 looks like it's done. I mean they've released the press statements, they never go back on those kind of things that's being written yeah. about. It's just a real shame. Yeah,
0: well that's too bad. Well, I guess we're gonna leave it at that sour note this week. Yeah. Uh, and hope that
1: we thank <laughs> you, everybody who canceled Saturday night the <laughs> movie.
0: Uh, yes. I I wish we could, you know, end out on the theme song for Magic Shadows. That'd be very appropriate. But uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully with some uh, better news to to share, more exciting and interesting things. At least there's going to be another episode of The Walking Dead to talk about.
1: Nothing else. There's always The Walking Dead.
0: And thank you very much for tuning in and joining and spending time with us. Uh, I really appreciate. It. I love seeing that there are viewers who are watching. I love the fact that people go to our website at heyallyouzombies.com, uh, which you know we still get great positive comments. A lot of people still love the the, the title. When I tell people that you and I do this, <laughs> Mark Cullen. While we're at the 40th anniversary of of Canada, I'm recording that in the middle of it. Leaned expert, over to Mark me. Cullen, yeah, yeah a gardening expert leaned over to me and said. I hear you and Richard get together and talk about zombies and stuff, and it was just <laughs> hilarious to have to explain that to him. I love that moment. I thought, well, that's just that's awesome. That's I fantastic. That. I love that they all chat about that. That that the Canadam group is like, what's going on with those guys? They get together and talk about zombies. That's just that's amazing. So uh, thank you, for, for joining us. And again, we'll see you next week.